Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say that unless anyone says that they are speaking on behalf of a particular organization or group, you should assume that each person's views expressed on Tatter are theirs and theirs alone. I just want to make that clear to avoid misunderstanding. And now that I have effectively precluded any such misunderstanding, let's get started. Here's Tatter. The term natal sex refers to the sex assigned to a newborn baby at birth. People who identify with the gender that matches their natal sex are often referred to as cisgender people, while those who transition away are termed transgender or trans people. I recently had a chance to talk to my former student Vanessa Ford and her husband J.R., and we talked about a variety of issues, including challenges facing trans youth and their families, as well as their own story. JR works for the federal government, and Vanessa is an educator, having taught for 14 years in the D.C. public schools, and then in 2016 becoming director of training and curriculum for a national education nonprofit. She is also a board member at the National Center for Transgender Equality. Both Vanessa and JR are vocal advocates for trans youth, and they are parents. Our conversation is the basis of this episode, which is titled, I am, I am, I am. Before we actually begin, I want to confess uh, that I'm a little nervous. Really? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in part, it's because uh, I know you well, Vanessa. Yeah. But more than that, uh, this interview is different from my typical interview where. I'm usually talking to people who say, because they're uh, academic researchers, they're experts uh, on the topic, but they're not stakeholders in a, in the same way that you both are sure. in this issue. And so I feel a special pressure to, to get this right because of how personally important it is to you. So I'll do my best. Thank uh, you. Yeah, Very appreciative of that. Of course. Well, I have full trust in you because um, number one, you're, you're you and you're thoughtful in all that you do. <laughs> and number two, you know, as we prepare for these things, we don't just talk to anybody. And so yeah. we only go with people we would trust in the first place. And so we're really excited about this actually, and to do it together because JR and I don't get to do a lot of things together, together, people yeah. together very often. Well, I am delighted to have you on and grateful for your time. Um, so, I want to talk about you and your children. And my understanding is your children are Ronnie and Ellie. Is that right? Yep. Yep. And is Ronnie the older? He is. Yeah. Uh, Ronnie is nine and Ellie is eight. Okay. Or she will be, sorry, she will be eight and in, uh, in March. So she's coming up on a, another birthday soon. Okay. And I am going to ask a few questions about Ellie in a second. But first, uh, Ronnie, tell me, what is his favorite TV show? Dude Perfect. Out of Texas. <laughs> these what? trick shot guys who do all these trick shots on YouTube and now have a Netflix series. He loves anything and all things sports, especially cool people doing cool sports. 
that's how he'd probably describe it. <laughs> what, was was the name of that show? Did you say Dude Perfect? What? That is literally what I said. Yes, Dude <laughs> Perfect. It's five college friends who learn to make these really cool basketball shots, and since have made all kinds of other um, trick shots. I guess they're called in sports. Yeah, and they're funny and have basically made an empire. <laughs> All right. And, for people uh, like my son. What about uh, Ronnie's favorite food? Mm, what Ronnie's, would you say, Jay? Ronnie's favorite food. Oh, boy. Um, uh, I have one. Maybe, maybe pizza or chicken nuggets. Uh, I don't know. No? Double burger with bacon, oh, yeah, bacon that's cheeseburger? Right. Double, a double bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> Any, anytime, all the time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and, and watermelon, he would say. I mean, okay. he loves fruit, uh, but that's really me just having to say that because that's probably the only healthy <laughs> thing that any of our children eat. I know, we, we're not the best in parenting. Maybe we should talk about that instead. <laughs> All right. Finally, uh, tell me what Ronnie's favorite subject in school is, if he has one. Hmm. Math. Math. Mm-hmm. He's uh, he took a long time to learn to read. Uh, he has a number of special learning abilities, as we call them. Yeah. And during that time, math really rose up, and and he has a really good sense of numbers. Um. And this year he really took on reading. He's in third grade and it finally clicked for him. So I'd say he's really starting to read a lot of the Diary of Olympic Kid books. But math and uh, PE and recess. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and lunch. <laughs> and lunch. Lunch is one of his favorites. I will say that he does love to read now because a lot of the books that he reads are fact-based. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he will spend hours reading about facts. So we have National Geographic fact books uh, littered in his room. And uh, now it's clean in the living room. But he will, he he just. clean in the living room. Yeah, now it's clean in the living room. Uh, But he will literally spend hours reading um, fact-based books. And it's just something that, as Vanessa, Vanessa mentioned, that as soon as he started to really pick up on the reading, he just became fascinated with all these different types of facts. So he'll just, yeah. you know, come out and, you know, just spit out one of his random facts that he learns from these books. So I would say that's a close and I second. Love, I love that you asked about Ronnie first. We don't get a chance to talk about what a special kid he is very often. Yeah. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about him as we go through. Yeah. Um, as he relates to everything, but that means a lot. It would mean a lot to him too. Roddy sounds similar to me when I was his age. Uh, math was oh, my really? favorite subject. Dude, perfect did not exist. So, I don't know <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, I was very much into sports and, and uh, cheeseburgers as well. So, although in, in fairness, a lot of kids are into cheeseburgers. So he, that's true. That's true. Now, uh, I want to know the same things regarding Ellie. So first, what's her favorite TV show? Uh, Pokemon. Anything Pokemon. Okay. She's Yeah, she basically could be a 90s kid. But okay. now Pokemon's back, so I guess she's a 2018 kid. Or 2019 <laughs> now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Happy New Year. <laughs> yeah, Happy New happy Year. year. Um, Ellie's favorite food? Nothing. 
That's she the had, frustration of a mother who wants her to eat more things other than bagels <laughs> and cream cheese would probably be her favorite food. <laughs> uh, I would say hot dogs is a, is a tie oh. for the bagels and cream cheese. Okay. Yeah, she, yeah, yeah. She eats hot Another dogs like you wouldn't value. believe. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it has a couple of the uh, other food groups in there. So, yeah, it, <laughs> it satisfies something, right? <laughs> yeah. Classic Lay's. She calls yeah. them classics. We're we're working we're working on this, Michael. Don't judge. <laughs> I was about to say, even though I, I've never gotten into Pokemon, uh, the foods we overlap a great deal there. <laughs> yeah. Pring, Pringles is also on my list. Uh, oh probably, yeah, probably hers too. Those are that's our road trip uh, snack for her. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can you can open the container, you can close the container. <laughs> exactly. Or leave it open. <laughs> And finally, uh, Ellie's favorite subject in school. What would you say? So she's picked up a lot on um, some parts of science and geography. And, yeah. and so her her teacher, who is Ronnie's teacher from last year, um, has really, I guess, harnessed some of uh, some of Ellie's uh, fascinations with, uh, science. with science. Yep. And so she has created these short videos that um, that she shares with us um, through Ellie's an app called Seesaw. Videos. Yeah, Ellie has, yeah. and there's this green screen that they can use, and she tells these really elaborate stories, and she's really, really taken to that, and it's helped her to open up this year um, because she had a, a kind of a challenging time at the beginning of the school year with going from um, first grade to second grade, and half of her friends are now in another grade. So I think science has really become uh, a, a kind of a, a stronghold for her uh, over the last uh, half of the half of, the, of 2018. What do you think, She's Vanessa? Really, I, I'd agree. I hadn't thought about that, and this is interesting too. She loves these two shows. Uh, I said Pokemon, but there's these two other shows on Netflix that she's obsessed with. And one is called Brain Games. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's all about how the brain works. And it's for adults. And it's fascinating because it tests all your perceptions and uh, gets into illusions and social perceptions. And then there is one that Pharrell is the executive producer of now called Brain Child. And it looks at the same thing, but for a younger audience. And so I think she has that science in her. She's very into video games. Um, uh, thinks about coding, but more about the characters. So it's this split between video games and science that tends to be her her, her big stronghold, as Jay said, in terms of what she's interested in. Yeah, Reading, don't forget not so much. Well, don't forget about the graphic novels. She started to get into yeah. those. Um, she has. It, 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 it revolves around Pokemon, though. So Pokemon is definitely <laughs> in the lead by far. Well, they both sound like delightful children, and I look forward to meeting them. Um, right now, I want to talk a bit more about Ellie's story. And mm -hmm. uh, my understanding is that, obviously, uh, Ellie's a girl, but her, uh, to use the scientific term, her natal sex was male. Tell me the story of how you came to hear from there. Both Ellie and Ronnie are very close and they're also close in age. So they're 17 months apart. So when we found out we were having Ellie, 
um, Ronnie was only nine months old. And in, within the first few months, I had to get an amniocentesis um, because they thought there may be some other issues going on. And there weren't, but we did find out at the time we were having another boy. And for me, um, I had had a really tough set of teen years with bullies and not the greatest experiences with girls and being a girl. And so I got really excited about having two sons really close together and, and had all these visions. Um, and we, when Ellie was born, that's who we thought we had. We also had, as they were growing up, Ronnie, who was into ballet at the time, loved wearing dresses and playing dress up. And we would get all these hand-me-downs from people and he'd play house with his friends. And when he was three and Ellie was two, um, that was kind of what was happening in our house. Ellie was just toddling around, um, seeming similar to her brother, but not quite as outgoing, I'd say, and very tantrumy about clothes. So we thought um, Ellie had some sensory issues, um, really only wanted to wear these very soft clothes right. all the time and these hand-me-downs. And, and we look back at these pictures and see that um, all these smiley pictures, and we see the same clothes over and over. And those clothes are very gender neutral. So yeah. in retrospect, we see that there was kind of this, this upset and it was around clothes. By the time Ronnie got to be four, he abandoned all dresses, picked up all sports and um, kind of took off in that direction, uh, not really wanting to mess with those gender roles too much, which we now know is really developmentally appropriate for kids. Yeah. Um, and Ellie at three kind of geared up on things like nail polish. Um, yeah. Jay can probably speak to something that happened at school at her daycare around nail polish, but then she tried on those same dresses and we started to notice we had a different kid um, when those dresses were on and then frozen came out and Ellie was about, was three and a half when Frozen came out and she just became obsessed and was begging for Frozen jammies. Yeah. And so we got these Frozen jammies and these Frozen outfits and they just were on all the time, all the time, except her preschool. But yeah. her preschool's uniform had the same colors as the Frozen colors, that, that blue, that light baby blue. So she didn't seem to mind that. And then we had, we had just bought a house in DC when we were living there. And we were having this really big housewarming slash fourth birthday party. Um, and it was an Elsa and Lightning McQueen themed birthday party. And Ellie was in a tiara and this Elsa nightgown and these Lightning McQueen slippers. And we had, gosh, 75 people there probably, Jay. It was just a really big packed. party. It was packed. And after that party was over, Everybody went home, it was adults, kids, and Elliot just had the best day and there was this big Elsa cake that our friend had made. We're walking upstairs and I just felt this sense of pride about, you know, our family. Here we were, you know, we had all these people in our house and how liberal were we to have our, you know, our son in, in dresses in front of everyone and how lucky were we that all these people were accepting this, this very very princessy birthday for our four-year-old um, who we thought was our son. So we were walking up the stairs and, and I said, oh, you are my favorite princess boy. I hope you had a great birthday, my princess boy. And, you know, at that point, it was 
like a record scratched and my child turned around, looked me straight in the eyes and said, mom, I'm not a boy. I'm a girl in my heart and my brain. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And so, um, that really launched us, uh, into kind of all of the things that came next because that was not language we'd ever heard from Ronnie. This was never uh, language that we didn't even know a four-year-old could have. Um, I think that that language was emboldened on that day because we now know that is exactly who she is. We didn't know that then, but to be surrounded by so much love gave her that feeling like she could finally tell us, or maybe she finally had the words that day. Yeah. But it took us a number of months after uh, before we actually really listened. And uh, But that's what, that's what led up to it. Yeah. I, I, I'd add that, um, you know, when Ellie announced that, you know, she was a girl, um, it wasn't that we didn't jump right on board. We were 100% supportive. Yeah. Um, this was all new to us. Well, you uh, were. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'll just be honest. Uh, JR was. Yeah. I, I was not as much, but we can get to that. Yeah. Hard so, proof. you know, Ronnie was the uh, the first one in our family, our immediate family, to change pronouns and to call huh. her sister. And that was right off the bat. Ronnie had no qualms about who she was and, you know, was really resilient and, and kind of kept it moving. So there was one day back in, uh, in daycare and um, I believe it was a, a day that, or the, the, it was a Monday actually. And um, Ellie and Ronnie had painted their fingernails, I believe the previous day and Ellie wanted to keep her fingernail polish on. And, you know, we said, fine, that's perfectly okay. So, um, you know, I, I dropped the, the kids off at school um, and dropped uh, Ellie off at daycare. And uh, Ellie's uh, daycare provider um, comes up to me and, and says that I want to talk to you about the fingernail polish and, um, you know, what that means for Ellie's future. Now, Ellie hadn't socially transitioned yet. So this is two years before, you know, her birthday and her big, her big coming out party. Yeah. Uh, so, but, you know, the, the, the daycare provider thought that by, just by wearing fingernail polish that this would have such an impact on Ellie as a person and what she thought as, you know, possibly her sexual orientation in you know, the future that she felt emboldened to talk to me about this. Yeah. And she I mean, I was taking you as a yeah. black dad. She right. directly, so as an yeah. African-American dad and she, you know, was African-American woman, you know, kind of a motherly figure for everyone. Yeah. Uh, so she really felt emboldened and, and empowered to talk to me about this. And I was taken aback and I, stood up to her right there and said, you know, this has no impact and, you know, on her future. And it's a kid wearing fingernail polish. Yeah. Um, it's, it's her expressing herself the way that she wants to.
And so, you know, fortunately, we had another caretaker who, you know, I would say is our, our big sister and aunt who also mm-hmm. stepped in after the fact. Maisha. Miss Maisha, who is phenomenal and we yeah. love her. Um, after the fact, she actually called me, um, you know, after I left. She did? Drop, yeah, she called me. Wow. And, you know, talked to me and said, you know, I had to step in and talk to, you know, the, the primary caretaker and, and say that, you know, it wasn't her place to talk to me about that. You know, yeah. the, the, her, her primary focus was to love, support, take care, make sure that, you know, all the kids in there are safe. That's it. So, yeah. you know, this wasn't just you know, a, uh, a flag on the pole. And this is what's happening now. This was a transition that happened two years prior to uh, her birthday party in where she said that she was a girl in her heart and her brain for all intents and purposes. And uh, kind of a, uh, uh, a disclaimer, Vanessa is the curator for the advocacy that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for me as a, as a African-American man and breaking the mold of the, the, the traditional upbringing and the internalizing of emotions and feelings and going through this process of, <clears throat> of unpacking all that and yeah. really getting down to the crux of why I am the way I am because, yeah. you know, I've suffered through depression over the past, you know, three years yeah. and, over the last couple of months, I've had kind of a, an epiphany and Vanessa can attest to this, that, you know, there's just been this whole new aura and positivity about, you know, the outlook on life for me. And, you know, part of the catalyst was Ellie, um, you know, really testing, you know, just how much can a person love someone? You know, it, it really did challenge me as a person because, you know, I've had my own trauma in life, you know, where my dad passed away when I was extremely young. I was 10 years old um, and, you know, he had battled through cancer for half of my life. So, you know, me imprinting on Ellie and Ronnie to, you know, be present, be engaged, you know, that was really hard and extremely difficult for me. Um you know, as a parent, you mm-hmm. know, uh, raising not only a biracial child, but, um, you know, a child who, you know, is not in the majority. She, you know, she's trans and, you know, and they just add in another layer of, oh gosh, you know, what is this life going to be like for her? And, you know, for me, you know, growing up, you know, through all this trauma and, and trying to be more present, more connected to not only them, but to Vanessa as well, because so, so so I just want, I just want to jump in. And and first of all, thank you, JR, for your, for your honesty, uh, for, for, for your candor. Um, and it sounds from both your comments as if Ellie has, enjoyed a great deal of support and affirmation from you and from her older brother and from Maisha and others. But 
uh, JR, and I want to I want to put this question to both of you, but I, but I want to put it to JR first. If I was following you, it sounds as if you've got some worries about the future. Is, is that right? Yeah. So, um, can you talk about what that means and how you're preparing for them? Yeah, that that's a. I mean, that's a great question. And you know, since we've embarked on this journey, um, you know, we've we've been connected and, and made some really great friends. Um, both in and outside the uh, the trans community. Yep. Um, but it's also made us keenly aware of the dangers that you know Ellie may embark upon um, as she gets older. Um, yep. You know, not even we're not. I'm not even talking about her as an adult or as a teenager. But in the next three to five years, she's going to start going through some changes. Yeah. Um, and you know, Vanessa can talk much more about the medical interventions and the puberty blockers and the estrogen. But, you know, we have family friends who are going through this right now. And, yeah. you know, literally, you know, Vanessa was talking to a mom yesterday um, and there's a, you know, a kid in crisis who's been in crisis for a long time. And so, you know, you know, I am, you know, afraid of, you know, what, Ellie's, you know, outlook might be in the next three to five years. And, you know, Vanessa, as I said, you know, before Vanessa puts in a huge amount of time and work, making sure that, you know, everyone in our family is educated and it's an imbalance. And I, I am the first to, to say that. And because of the things that I've gone through and the imbalance that I've had um, with her being the, the pathfinder and the leader, um, I understand that I can't learn everything, um, and then you know I'm going to be naive and ignorant on certain things, and and that comes at a disadvantage because you know I don't know everything out there that Ellie might potentially potentially go through, um, you know, either in school or you know talking to you know uh, the endocrinologist, you know, or going to you know our um, um, you know, the, the Boston, uh, uh, hospital down, you know, down there and talking about, you know, the gender clank down there. So, you know, my, my apprehension is about my naivety and ignorance on very technical matters where, you know, it is hard for me to kind of unpack still you know, what her outlook might be in the next three to five years. So that's where uh, a yeah. lot of that comes from. And, you know, it does take a lot for me to, um, you know, to, to sit down and to actually be connected into something. And Vanessa can attest to this, you know, again, where, you know, she's right on top of things. She will reach out and, you know, reach out and touch someone. For me, it's, you know, I have to be reminded, you know, several times because, you know, for me to make those movements, it requires that much more because of the yep. depression, yep. you know, and the anxiety that I have around things. Yep. And it's unfortunate because I want to um, move past that, but it's still so fresh in my brain. And I've spent the majority of my life being that person who internalizes, disconnects, and just navigates on my own path where now that's severely impacting, you know, my, 
you know, my effort to try to learn and step out of, you know, my own comfort zone. So that, that's where a lot of the, uh, the nervousness and the apprehension comes from. So first of all, Jay is not giving himself enough credit in through all of this. He has, he's been there for Ellie in all of the ways and for Ronnie, uh, that to the visible outside folks and to our children, they haven't noticed what I did all right, as a wife. Um, and so I'm really glad he's gotten that help and is now speaking about it because I think it'll help a lot of people. For, for me and for Ellie, I think because of the amount of advocacy we've done, I have worries for her, but I also have worries for thousands who are like her. So I think a lot of our advocacy has shifted from what exactly our daughter needs because we know we're providing all of that to what all of the daughters and sons and non-binary siblings need in our nation with it they are not getting in the current climate. Specific to our child, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about the um, medical interventions coming up. I trust them. I trust the process. I trust that we will have the care needed and we're lucky enough to have the resources available in terms of insurance to get access to those things as we need them. But ultimately, our daughter will leave our home and be a transgender woman of color in this world. And last year, there were 28 transgender people murdered. The vast majority were transgender women of color. And so for, and that's just in the United States. Yep. The, the danger for our child, once she leaves our home, um, and once she grows up to be her own independent woman, and once you meet her, you know there will be no other kind of woman she will be, but independent. <laughs> Yeah. Um, then we have less control. Um, and the only thing that we can do is prepare her to have her own mind, her own idea of boundaries and safety, her own language to communicate uh, what she needs to, when she feels she needs to, and an age-appropriate understanding of the challenges she'll face. And that last piece is what's been hardest because ultimately – we made a decision for our children to be public advocates when they could not make that decision themselves, yeah. right? They, now when we choose to do things, we speak to them in advance. But ultimately, in the beginning, we were making that choice. And JR and I made that choice for them by asking ourselves, is this something that our children will look back on when they're older and know why we did it, that it could make a positive change, that it could help somebody. And we said no to anything that we didn't feel um, would be that way or felt exploitive. However, we don't know the impact of all of this on them yet. What we do know is that both have an understanding of the current political climate, they have an understanding of who is president and what that person believes. We have tried to carefully craft how we speak about and what is um, audible in our house, either in radio or in television, so so that they don't know the depth of the hatred coming, especially Ellie's way currently, and how many rights are starting to be taken away. And ultimately, I mean, our family met with Secretary DeVos in 2017 after Trump rescinded the guidance, the Obama-era guidance around Title IX and and needs of transgender students in schools, we met in person. And only a few weeks ago before, before the 2018 election, I was sitting um, with Ellie in the car and she said, mom, 
why why do some people hate transgender people? And it was out of what I felt like was nowhere, but it's yeah. not nowhere in her brain. It's yeah. very present. And we had to speak about that that the reason why my belief is that most people are good and want good for others. And it's that they don't know anybody. And when you don't know something, it can be scary because you don't understand it. And and that when we share our story, it saves lives because people start to understand how awesome it is to have unique children, including a transgender child. But then she said, but what about our friends? What about friends who are really nice to us and then turn around and then they're mean and they don't like me? And I was trying to figure out for the life of me who she could be speaking about. And she said, it's that woman who is sitting next to Trump making that triangle with her fingers. And it was Betsy DeVos. So Ellie's memory of meeting Betsy DeVos was this very nice-seeming grandmother figure who was kind to her. And then she saw an image of one of our advocacy pieces where I wrote a very unkind (laughs) but truthful critique of Secretary DeVos in Newsweek. Or it was in the Washington Post. And she'd seen that image somewhere, even though she hadn't read it. And she'd seen this woman she thought was her friend. Because in a five-year-old's mind, a friend is someone who's nice to you, right? Right. with this man who she knows is not. And I had, it really took me aback and made me question some of the things we've done, but I have to believe that it's for the, for the greater good. And then we had to speak also about how that made her feel. And it seemed to come to some resolution where she felt better about it. But ultimately I'm most concerned for her in this world that is actively trying to erase people like her out of, out of existence by making it really difficult for them to exist safely. Hey folks, this is Michael, and I want to jump in to say thank you to those of you who are supporters of Tatter through Patreon. Your support means a lot to me, and it allows me to put the time and money into making each episode, which is why I've begun to give you early access. For everyone else, if you want to become a supporter, go to tatter.fireside.fm slash tatter support for more information. Uh, obviously, there are some critics, or maybe a better term would be skeptics, uh, who, mm-hmm. upon hearing Ellie's story, say, oh, uh, Ellie is just going through a phase. Yeah. What, 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 if people have said that to you, what have you said? Or hypothetically, what would you say to someone who, who, who says that? Well, we are now almost four years in, so I I can speak to that this was our biggest question. I I think people get really reactive, people with trans kids, when people say, well, is this a phase? And we get really defensive. But ultimately, that was the first question I had myself when I had a young child. I'd had a son who had liked dresses and then it stopped. So how is this different? And, And what I said then and what therapists helped me learn to say is people are who they say they are until they tell you otherwise uh-huh. and that was a really helpful statement that my child was very clear about who she was it wasn't just that one time that she said this after she said that it was like a cork popped out and everything was I am I am I am a girl uh-huh. um, her stick figures how she drew herself the clothes she wanted And we were researching and we were trying to find any research out there that could guide us in helping understand. And at the time, even four years ago, 
so much has changed. But at the time, the biggest statistic that was floating around was out of a Danish study that said 80% of trans yeah. youth changed their mind, right? Yeah. What we now know is that like the damaging autism study with vaccines, this was damaging in its own way because the methodology was so flawed. Yeah. And we don't really know, right, who's changing their mind, so to speak. So what we do know, and now we know it through these studies that Ellie is in, this trans youth project out of the University of Washington, is that gender identity is stable by five. That is for cisgender or non-transgender youth, and it is for transgender youth. It is stable by five, and that there's lots of gender exploration before five, but at five, people know who they are, and that could be the same as what they were assigned at birth. It could be different. It could be neither. It could be both. Um, it could be a fluid identity. But for me, when that research came out, that was really, really helpful for me to trust my daughter. At that point, we'd already been listening to her. We'd switched her name and pronoun, but there was still this inkling like, I, what if? And I guess we always said that if she did, we'd listen to her then too. But we now know this is exactly who she is. Um, and again, she is who she says she is until she tells us otherwise. And, and, um, just, and just if I could just jump in um, from one thing that I've uh, read, uh, Christina Olson, uh, yes. so, uh, who she, she's the director of the of the yep. uh, the trans youth project trans youth project yep. so one thing that i've read her uh point out is that one of the problems with that study to which you referred that claimed yep. uh, 80% desistance rate hey folks this is michael as you might have just noticed i use the term desistance in the interview and I use the term desistance to refer to the process of changing one's mind about transition after having socially or perhaps even medically transitioned. And I use that term because I had seen it in reading that I had done in preparation for the interview, but I've done more reading since finishing the interview, including an Atlantic article by Tay Meadow. And Meadow makes a case that the term desistance is problematic in part because it carries an unwarranted stigma. And this is perhaps especially apparent when you consider that the term desistance is used in the criminological literature to refer to ceasing engagement in criminal activity. Uh, and I found Meadows' argument on this point persuasive, and so in retrospect, I wish I'd used a different term. But for the sake of honesty in presenting the interview to you, I'm going to present the terminology as it was used in the interview. But be aware that were I to do this interview again, I would opt for a different term. I'm also going to include a link to Meadows' article on the homepage for this episode so that you can read for yourself. One of the problems with that study to which you referred that claimed yep. uh, 80% desistance rate is that yeah, the sample included kids who were not persistent, uh, consistent, and insistent uh, you got it. in their uh, 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 statements that they were the gender opposite from what they were assigned at birth. Right. 
And so, um, and that if you limit the focus to kids who are persistent, consistent, and insistent, one would mm-hmm. expect, and, and, and the implication is the desistance rate would be much lower. Yeah. My, my question is, does that fit with your intuition and your experience? The idea that, say, for example, in Ellie's case, she's been persistent, mm-hmm. she's been consistent, she's been insistent, and therefore mm-hmm. you're confident that she is unlikely to desist. Exactly that. So there are plenty of children who are gender nonconforming, right? And that looks at how they express themselves, how they dress, the roles that they want to play. But these are not the same children who are saying, I am, I am. Some say I want to be, and that I want to be is a little different, right? Because there might be gender roles and things you want to be able to do, but you're not allowed to because of our society. We have seen nothing but a stay the course from that moment on that day in March in 2015. There's not been a single moment where Ellie has said or experienced or shifted to lead us to think that she would desist. And there's actually an amazing article um, by Think Progress, Zach Ford, and he did a long piece kind of investigation into the desistance myth and looked at all the current research. And for me as a parent, those are so helpful because you can send them to others who question. But even if, what I put to parents is still a question, right? Like I say, number one, you have to respect our daughter's name and pronoun. So when you're speaking to her, you have to respect who she is. It's also her legal name now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the second piece is, what would you want for your child? If you had a child who was seemingly very unhappy and you knew that something you could do could make them happy and affirm who they are yep. and a like or a love that they have, why would you choose not to? And that's, you know, I'm not saying we have like a happy-go-lucky seven-year-old <laughs> all of the time. That yeah. is not the case. She's a second nope. grader in all the second grade glory. <laughs> um, but most parents, and what we've really found, Michael, is that People have accepted us. There are those who really fight this tooth and nail, but we have found that neighbors who are incredibly conservative, Fox News watching, will respect and support our family. Maybe it will not extend past Ellie right now, but our hopes that it would. And I've also found that my biases, biases that I found out I had, Initially, when I was taking your classes in college, <laughs> all these implicit biases I built up over time have been challenged. So while I was sitting here thinking, oh, that person's going to judge us because of their religion, or that person's going to judge us because of their political affiliation, or that person's going to judge us because of their life experience, over and over again, when people have gotten to know us, our story, met our family, or even just watched one of the videos we've done or read some of the articles, they've come back and said, I just didn't know. I'm starting to understand. Can I learn more? But do you think you would have been that fortunate, say, if you were in Mississippi? No. I mean, there are some in Mississippi who would say I've been really lucky, right? I think we did this in D.C. We've done this in Massachusetts. But I do know people in places all over the country who have had positive experiences. 
I also know people who've had terrible experiences in DC and in Massachusetts. So I, I, I guess it comes down to there's not one singular um, way to, to exist or plan yeah. to support a transgender child. But, I, but one thing I do know for sure is that a transgender child's chance of surviving their teen years is, is not good if they don't have their family support. Yeah. So that's where we start, right? School support is, is critical as well. But without that family and then without that school, it's a lot more dangerous. So sometimes it's about starting just with the immediate parent who's parenting that child. If someone comes to you and let's say they are a parent and their child, their three-year-old, has just told them, I am the opposite gender from that which I was assigned at birth. If you could give that parent one piece of advice, what piece of advice would you give them? Sure. That, that I think that might've happened a few times, um, <laughs> you know, many times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's happened to each of us. Um, but you know, the, one of the first key pieces of advice I would give to that parent or guardian is to listen, to listen to that child. Um, you know, it's really important once that child has the vocabulary, um, has the wherewithal and the intelligence to tell you what's going on. The, the key is to listen. Um, you know, there, as Vanessa, as Vanessa uh, said earlier, they're, their parents and, and, and families that are going through <clears throat> uh, very drastic um, issues in their families that, you know, the, the key for them was to first listen, um, even though it might not have been an easy road for them to traverse down. The key is for them to listen, because if they hadn't listened, it would have, this probably would have been a much more um, dramatic situation. Not to say that it, isn't right now, but you know, the friends and families that we have come to know, they've all listened. Um, and then the, the, the second thing, which I think is also really critical is to give that child and the other children, give them space. You know, Vanessa and I, we, we gave our kids space just to be themselves, you know, and that frees up so much inhibitions that we have, you know, because we have so many life experiences that, you know, we are more risk averse than, you know, a three or four year old maybe. Um, so giving them the space just to be themselves and then to listen to them, you know, will be tremendous for that kid in terms of supporting them, not shooting down who they say they are um, or ideas about what they could possibly um you know, be in the future, um, you know, that space and the opportunity for them to grow as a person is vital because it's not any different from, um, you know, raising a cisgender kid. Um, it really isn't. And, you know, as Vanessa highlighted earlier in the Trans Youth Project, you know, th this is something that's really critical at this age for 
you know, a gender non-conforming kid, a trans kid, a cisgender kid. It's all the same. We've listened to our kids. Vanessa, what would you, thank you. But Vanessa, what would you add? I would add for that parent to reach out and find another parent to speak with. Um, there are so many of us who are there and ready to talk with new parents as they enter into this journey. And that journey may be to have a gender nonconforming child. It may be a child who's transgender. It may be a cisgender child. Um, but there are so many of us experiencing this, thousands and thousands. You can find online groups through Facebook. You can reach out to us directly. Um, we're easy to find in terms of on, on Facebook, the Ford family, easy to find there. Um, and I probably get contacted at least twice a week from new families. And, and there are many others who do the same. And we're able to get folks connected to either local resources, local parent groups, national online Facebook groups. But it's really important to connect with others who can understand what you're going through so that you can best be there for your own child when you do choose to listen to them. So suppose that this parent who comes to you for advice makes clear that they, they love their child, but they've, they've encountered uh, stories of uh, desistance, whether it's desistance after social transition or desistance after uh, Mm -hmm. medical uh, transition. And, and and as an aside, I, I, even though I join you in affirming and supporting Ellie, I don't want to deny the validity of any individual's narrative if they've desisted. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. um, suppose this parent has heard those narratives and they, they, they totally get that children like Ellie who are persistent and consistent and insistent may in fact be unlikely to eventually desist. They still worry about that and they want, because they love their child, they want right. to know how can they be affirming while also minimizing the risk of their child later experiencing regret after transition, what would your advice to them be? That is a heavy question. So um, my advice would be that it is critical, potentially life-saving, regardless of narratives you've heard about the system, that if, you believe you have a transgender child or your child is telling you again and again, this is who they are. And especially if you are seeing um, actions that are, are either dangerous or mental health concerns, that it is the parent's responsibility to keep their child safe by listening to them. I understand that there are narratives of distance out there. Um, we also are learning more and more about how unlikely that is. But worrying about a potential regret years down the line when, if you didn't listen to your child, you might lose your child altogether, is not a balanced argument. If I were speaking directly to a parent, I would probably be kinder in this, provide a lot of resources to educate the parents, because oftentimes if you're only hearing dissistence narratives or if you're hearing a lot of them or a lot of the traditional pushback because that's the environment you're in, you likely haven't also had the opportunity to read about, watch videos about, learn about, or meet any other families who are 
listening to their children. It's just so imperative to the well-being of, of a child to be affirmed by their parents. It reduces the suicide um, attempt rate down to the normal, not, not the normal, to the general population. Yep. So if a child is not listened to, just this is something I do tell parents. So I, I'm very honest. If a child is not affirmed and is transgender, the likelihood that that child will attempt suicide is over 50%, even higher for trans youth of color. If that child is affirmed at home and in school, it reduces to 4%, which is the general population. So listening to your child can be life-saving. And if that child then chooses not to live or chooses to, or changes the way they express themselves. Because desistance can look a lot of different ways for a lot of different reasons. And I think you're right um, not to categorize any person's experience, but it's not always what it seems. <laughs> um, then the point there would be that the parent would support their child then as well. But it is life-saving, I would tell parents. And I've told parents again and again, and there are parents listening to their children in every single nook and cranny that there is. There is a family I've met in um, with a biracial transgender daughter in Appalachia trying to figure out how to support their child. And that, because of the mother's listening, that child is doing so, so well. And it's slowly working on the community and the school to help accept the child. It's possible. And I think a lot of times parents will revert to the desistance myth out of fear for, for what kind of advocacy work and environment they're living in to start with and potentially their beliefs. I'd really encourage people also, if they're really feeling this way, especially if not just desistance, it's religious beliefs. There are a couple of amazing parents that come, who come from different um, religious backgrounds and who have done a lot of advocacy, Debbie Jackson, Kimberly Shapley, these are names of people to Google who came from incredibly conservative and religious backgrounds and have supported their transgender daughters. And they speak directly to these communities that we're not as, as um, well connected with and really show how did you tackle this path? Because I think that not listening to your child is, is generally less about desistance. That's not usually the concern I hear. It's more about understanding of what this means mm -hmm. and how it is at odds with a belief system. JR, is there anything that you'd want to add? <laughs> uh, I, I think Vanessa covered pretty much everything I was going to say. And um, I think the only thing I would uh, continue to highlight is the challenge that, um, you know, the parent or the guardian might face with those norms and, you know, the expectation that they might have had for that child. You know, this isn't any different, and I say this in general terms, this isn't any different from listening to, you know, any other type of, you know, any, any other kid. You know, it really does talk, you know, it really does focus on whether you're willing to listen to your child, regardless of you know, their gender identity. Um, you know, Vanessa was noting about, you know, some of our conservative uh, friends who, you know, have uh, different connections to these other communities. 
raising a transgender child or a gender non-conforming child crosses all different types of boundaries and and people and people and it really challenges those moral beliefs those ethical beliefs um and it takes people out of that comfort zone that you know they might have grown up in or have been accustomed to um you know it, it, it you know and I, I hate to you know try to compare things but think about racism you know if you have a child who's growing up in you know a racist household that's all they know is that they are uh you know viewing things from a very different you know lens and and then they grow up and then they have this and you know uh, entrenched and embedded uh ideology and challenging that you know now as an adult is really hard so when they're raising a child you know who might have friends who are of different you know racial backgrounds it's no different from you know our neighbors who might have different views because they've grown up um you know having these very very uh, different lenses on life so when you know when you have a child who you know maybe uh being raised in a different um you know environment and that childish childish challenging the parents about what they assumed and what they expected for this child it's really up to that parent and vanessa highlighted this very eloquently about um you know challenging you know that expectation and giving the opportunity for that parent and that child to have the conversation and that's you know, why as, i say really connecting with other parents yeah. is really what allows so many families the okay to listen to their kid and i would actually respectfully disagree with my husband that it's it's raising a trans child is just like raising any child um, because ultimately, it's like raising any child with a with a need that is unexpected that you have to advocate for. Because you can't just support your child at home. Your child exists in so many other spaces. You don't need to be an advocate in media, but you are going to have to speak with a school. You're going to have to speak with medical providers. You're going to have to speak with family and community um, to ensure your child's safety. And those things are really, really daunting if you're in a situation where you know you want to do this, but it is at odds with whatever that environment is. And that's where these networks of support and also major organizations, the National Center for Transgender Equality, the Human Rights Campaign, GLSEN, all of these organizations have so many resources available and people who are willing to speak up and support. But a lot of times it's really getting over that hump of, of parents' own beliefs and ideas for what they thought their child was or would be um, that is the biggest, biggest roadblock. And that's why parents are here for each other. It would seem as if there are multiple levels at which policy is set that affects uh, trans ju- uh, children. Federal judges. So- Federal, federal judges, judges. state yep. level, even yep. level of school board. District level. Am, am, am yep. I right about that or am I wrong? Absolutely. Absolutely. You're absolutely right about it. Where is it most important to intervene then? At what level? Oh, boy. 
Every level, interrupt at every level. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll take this one because I've been actually traveling on the country doing presentations for, for at professional conferences for educators. And uh, one of the steps I talk about is interrupting, interrupting bullying and also interrupting policy where needed. Um, when it comes to schools, as an educator, there are immediate things that schools can do to affirm trans youth, regardless of the policies at the district or state level. Then there are the next level things that can happen at the school board. There are, depending on where each state is, where each district is and where each school is with their school board, that is where the advocacy needs to be. So we can't expect federal change to happen overnight for positive things at this moment. Yeah. But that does not mean that a trans student in Arizona at a school that has not yet had an out trans student cannot support that student. Yeah. It doesn't mean that the school board won't be supportive. It doesn't mean that the district won't put some of policies into place. So all of those things can be advocated for. And we're seeing that nationally every week there's a school board or there is a district that is putting trans affirmative or including gender identity in their non-discrimination language, enumerating it. And that is outside state policy. And then there's people fighting in the legislature. So I think interrupting this narrative that it's just not possible to affect change is, is an important one. And it's also really important for people and your listeners to know that affecting change for trans youth in particular matters at all levels. So the state policy is only a policy. The practices are different. So start where you need to start and keep pushing. Uh, federal judges will be a really, really, really big problem. So if you see that there are federal judges in your area, speak out, write letters. But if you also know that you have a trans child or there are trans children in a school that the school is not supportive, start speaking out to the school board. There's no wrong level to get involved on this topic. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Vanessa and JR for taking the time to talk with me and for being so open. For links related to their advocacy, including a link to the National Center for Transgender Equality, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can use Twitter. The handle is at tatter underscore rags. Alternatively, you can post a review at iTunes. And you can also send private feedback by email to tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com. No matter what, I value your feedback immensely. And finally, thanks for listening, and be well. <laughs>